0: Well, it is delightful to be here with you this morning. Uh, as I mentioned some time ago to Pastor, Pastor Losh, I'm very thankful that God has provided a, a younger man to come along and help to, with the ministry here, but the downside of it is that I'm not needed as often. <laughs> so I'll have to try to find vacation time to come down and, and visit if that exists. <laughs> Still, it's a blessing uh, always to be here with you. Pastor Lush also asked me to bring some messages specifically from material that I gave at the pastor's conference on Jesus Christ doing the work of an evangelist, and so I'd like for us to consider that, but before we do, let's seek the face of God together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be merciful to help us as we come to your word, that we would not take for granted that it is your book, a holy book. We are not a holy people as we ought to be. And so we plead with you that you would, by your grace and by your Spirit, apply the blood of Christ to us, cleansing us of all of our sins and helping us to handle your word aright. Lord, teach us from the example of your own Son how we can better glorify you with this glorious gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just say at the outset, this is not a message on evangelism. It's not going to cover everything that a church or an individual needs to know about evangelism and how to carry it out and uh, and the kinds of things that can and should be done. It is a message specifically looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of uh, how to live our lives with this particular focus. How was he... How did he go about the work of evangelism? Now, there were several books which uh, I recommended to the men. If you're interested in some of those books, I can can share those with you later. But I'm going to try to take this one message that I gave at the pastor's conference and make it into two messages today here in the adult class and then secondly uh, in the morning hour. And my understanding is that we end at 10.30, is that correct? Right, not 10.49... Need to change the clock up there, okay. So, first of all, my first point, if you have your outline there in front of you, my first point is that Jesus was not an evangelist. Jesus was not an evangelist. And you say, well, wait a minute, now you're, you're going to start off with a heretical statement. No, let me explain what I mean. Jesus was not an evangelist. The word evangelist appears only three times in the New Testament. As a noun, it appears in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. And so Philip is specifically called an evangelist. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, in the uh, description of the uh, gifts that Christ gives to the church and those uh, that, are to, that are given to the church to accomplish various roles, we read, and he gave, that is, Jesus gave some as apostles, some as as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And the only other place it appears is 2 Timothy chapter 2 or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. So Acts 21:8, Ephesians 4:11 and 2 Timothy 4:5 in which Paul writing to his younger brother in the faith says, "But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, uh, I'm going to make a point of this. I just want you to understand why I'm doing this in a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, the word evangelist is not used of Jesus as an office that he filled. He filled the, the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, in that prophetic role, there was evangelism involved. But he didn't actually, it's never described, he's never described as an evangelist. So then the second point is Jesus' purpose was to evangelize, or Jesus doing the work of evangelism. Old Testament prophecies uh, specifically highlighted the fact that he would come with good news. We read of that in Luke chapter 4. If you want to take your Bibles and open there, we'll be back in Luke chapter 4 a little bit later. But Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me." He's reading the scriptures there in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads these words, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel." And the the Greek word there, he anointed me to evangelize to the poor. "...he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set free those who are oppressed." to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So quoting from Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 61, we read that Jesus was anointed, specifically prophetically described as being anointed to evangelize, to preach the gospel. And then there in Luke chapter 4, down in verse 43, he specifically says this is what he must do. This is his stated purpose. But he said to them, I must. And there's a little... For you Greek students, as they say, the particle of necessity, day, that little bitty word that means they must be done. I must preach. I must evangelize the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he realizes this is the purpose for which I've come, that I must evangelize. And then there's these summary statements found in the Gospels that highlight what Jesus' ministry was, and they summarize his ministry with this language, the gospel of of the kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, heralding, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. That's Matthew 4, verse 23. Matthew 9, verse 35, another similar statement in another part. He said another part of, of the country. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and heralding the good news of the kingdom, the euangelion, the, the gospel, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of, dis- of sickness. Luke 8, verse 1, another summary statement. Soon afterwards he began going around from city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching, evangelizing the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Now, there's one final passage I want us to look at to, to get this. So these are, remember, these are just summary statements. So if you want to talk about Jesus' ministry, what he'd been about doing, he, he was going about proclaiming, and what was he proclaiming? He was evangelizing or proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read Mark's summary statement here. He says, Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And if you've got the New King James or the, uh, the old authorized King James version, you'll note that it says, preaching the kingdom of the, 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 kingdom of the gospel, or the gospel, of the, excuse me, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so it's the good news of the kingdom of God, saying, and now he's going to tell us what the message sounded like, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, the good news: repent and believe the gospel. This was his message. So let's just look at this passage just for a brief time. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, the first New Testament prophet, comes and he is the forerunner for Jesus Christ. So we're inter- after being introduced by John, chapter verses two through eight, and identified by God with the descending of the spirit and the heavenly voice, verses nine through 11. He is then impelled by the Spirit to be victorious over Satan in the wilderness, unlike the people of Israel were, and unlike Adam was. After these things have happened, Jesus now came, or comes, heralding, being this spokesman for the king, heralding the good news of the kingdom of God. Now elsewhere, in John 18, this speaks. Jesus says that he is the king. So in the coming of the kingdom, he, it comes with the king appearing. So John 18, verse 37, when Pilate asks him, are you a king? Jesus answered and says, you answer correctly, I am a king. For this I was born and for this I have come into the world. But as a king, he came to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now let's go back to that summary statement there for a bit and just look at what it is that, that, that happened here. Um, he says, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Here is a summary of the good news. The time has come. The time is fulfilled. Uh, Uh, Paul echoes similar words or uses similar words in Galatians 4 when he says the fullness of the time came. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So this time has come. This is the time that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 9 when he said Zebulun and Naphtali Naphtali would see a great light. They were all in darkness, and light would come, and that light has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark goes on to say, that, in summarizing this message, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. Hendrickson summarizes four ways that we can understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God speaks particularly of his sovereign rule over everything. The sphere in which he exercises his reign. And certainly, I think that's part of what he's saying here, but there's more, because it also speaks of complete salvation. This kingdom of God is the reception, being in the kingdom is the reception of full and complete salvation. If you turn over to Mark chapter 10, if you want to look there, I'm going to just read a couple of verses Mark chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. Jesus had made some very difficult words uh, about how impossible it is for one to be saved and he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now what does he mean? To enter what? To enter into heaven? No. He says he goes on to say the people were he goes on to say the people were astonished saying among themselves, who then can be saved? He had just said it's impossible to be saved. To enter the kingdom is to be saved, is to be completely saved. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the kingdom of God is this offer of salvation in which people can be delivered from sin and judgment and wrath to come. And then completely redeemed and renovated, excuse me, the church. Excuse me, the church is also described as the kingdom of God in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, this church. And those in it are going to have the king, the keys for the kingdom. The church is the kingdom where Christ reigns. The members are those who have been saved, who have entered into this complete salvation. And then, of course, the kingdom of heaven can be finally described as the final renovated universe. Right? And all of these are tied together. There's none of them that exists independently. There's God's sovereign rule, and within that sovereign rule, there are those whom he has chosen who are saved, and those whom he has chosen who are saved become part of his of His church. His a place where Christ rules. He's the head of the church, and they are the ones who will then enter into the fullness of the kingdom when Christ returns. Matthew 25, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he says here, Jesus, Mark says that Jesus' message could be summarized by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, before I go on there, let me just let me just read a quote here from, from Hendrickson. Jesus spoke of the work of salvation as the kingdom or reign of heaven in order to indicate the supernatural character, origin, and purpose of our salvation. Our salvation begins in heaven and should redound to the glory of the Father in heaven. Hence, by using this term, Christ defended the truth so precious to all believers that everything is subservient to God's glory. Jesus Christ came proclaiming this good news. The kingdom has come. And what a glorious truth that is and something we need to latch on to and I think make sure that we're holding tightly to. The gospel is the message from the king and therefore it has authority. The gospel is a message about a kingdom. It addresses our allegiances. Are you aligned with the king or are you aligned with the the enemy of the king? The message of the gospel is one which requires a response. It doesn't come and say, well, there's a few options here. You know, uh, you like like I believe uh, Hinduism. You know you can you can enter in by 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 this path or or by this path or or by this path. He says no. There's only there's only one way in, and it requires this response. You must repent and believe. And the gospel speaks of a power to deliver, of reconciling sinners, reconciling enemies. The gospel offers men the prospect of rest, of deliverance, of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of dwelling with God, and that forever. Now, in a world like we live in now that is so filled with hate and murder and, and, and violence and, and, and lies and darkness all around us of all different kinds, doesn't that ring true as the thing that we need most? The gospel. An authoritative message, not just some wimpy little promise that some politician's going to raise his hand and say, well, I'll do this for you. No, this is the king speaking, the king of kings. And entering into that kingdom means that you have aligned yourself with him and then enjoy all the blessings of that kingdom by coming in through repentance and faith and then enjoying those blessings. Then he even says, it has drawn near. It's It's not just the kingdom at the end of time that he's speaking about here. He says, no, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It has drawn near. We see the same thing in Matthew 4 and in Matthew 3. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Evidenced by the fact that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. Evidenced by the fact that the forerunner has come, that Isaiah had promised, that God had promised through the prophet Isaiah and as i said there's a two-sided demands of this gospel so here's the here's the here's the bottom line so jesus is not an evangelist but he is certainly doing the work of proclaiming the gospel he is evangelizing now why do i take the time even to emphasize that well because of the fact i want you to i want all of us to understand it's not just for the specialist Evangelism is not just for the guy who is set apart as an evangelist with a peculiar set of qualities and a peculiar set of gifts that he can go out and he can talk to anybody on the street. I know somebody walks up to black Muslims in, in, in some of the, the darker part of, uh, New, of New Jersey and he walks right up into a group of them and he starts preaching the gospel to them. I don't know if that's boldness or stupidity, but I mean he, he, he's actually quite bold. Actually, it is boldness. It's courage. Because he goes up and he speaks the gospel to them. You say, okay, well, he's got a peculiar set of gifts and a peculiar set of of heart motivations that move him to do that. Does that mean we all should? No, we don't all have those same gifts. But that doesn't mean we can't do the work of evangelizing. And that's what I want to show as we look now at Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. Roman numeral two. Jesus in action, if you will. And, and when I started this study, I did it just like I do every other study. I always do my word studies first, and I do search out all the words, and that's why I found this evangelist. It's never used of Jesus. And interestingly enough, the, the, works, the words for gospel or evangelizing are not even used in the gospel of John. So it's, 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 it's uniquely used. And, and then so, but then as I began to study, I realized, man, I've, it, it exploded. I had so much material. I had an embarrassment of riches. And then those who know me said, oh great, here's another long one. <laughs> right? all, this, all this material to work with, you know, and it's just, it just exploded. Rather than shrinking down to a, a, a particular activity that you did, it, it, it just grew. And so I want to look at three contexts of proclamation. Jesus was engaged in doing the work of an evangelist. So he is an example to all of us as how we can do the work of an evangelist, not be an evangelist, but do that work, if you will. And there's three contexts in which he'd, he'd, he'd engage in this kind of proclamation. The first, open-air preaching. Does't surprise us, does it? Open-air preaching. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. After addressing the the crowd, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There he did. He declared the gospel. Come to me. Find rest. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, another opportunity of open-air evangelism. There he is in the temple. And on that last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So there he is. He's there in the open air proclaiming the good news. Soul thirst can be satisfied in me. But then it's also part of his applications for his general sermons. In Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23, a verse we looked at a little bit ago, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming, that is, I think, still within that synagogue context, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. It's in that context that he was preaching and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 30, or verse 17 of that same chapter. And so there he is in the in synagogues and what's he doing when he has opportunity to teach and to preach is he brings it to the gospel, brings it to this good news. We see that, saw the same thing in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that quote, that that passage we looked at in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he reads this passage and he tells them, this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? Do you believe the prophet? I'm here! The Messiah who brings this good news. And then even at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I realize the Sermon on the Mount is something that was done in the open air, but I think it's typical of his way of preaching, He comes to the end of his sermon, and like many of us do, we're in good company. The Lord Jesus puts the gospel right at the end of his sermon. In, In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, he gives two evangelistic applications, two gates, two ways, two destinations, and two builders, two houses, two foundations, and two outcomes. And he says, this is the gospel. So he has the gospel there as part of his normal preaching in his sermons in his teaching. But then thirdly, and predominantly, I would say, in many ways, personal providential conversations. So open-air preaching, applications in regular sermons and teaching, and personal providential conversations. Now I'm going to show you, this this first example here is, is the one that got my attention and set me on the path for this study here. In Mark chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9, we read about a man who was let down by his friends but was not disappointed. As a friend of mine once entitled the, 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 the reality, these four men bringing their paralyzed friend and they let him down in front of Jesus. Remember, that you know the story. They, they pull the tiles off the house and they let him down in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say as soon as he is there? And seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic... Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, wait a minute. <clears throat> that is not what I think he expected. Certainly not what I expected. And I hear this, these words being said, and I said, wait a minute, I expected him to say, get up and walk. Take up your bed, and that's, and that's he does get to that, but he doesn't start with that. He starts with, your sins are forgiven. What has he done? There are scribes, and there are Pharisees, and there are people all around this building. He has just told them what this man's greatest need is, and in their hearing has made it clear, you know what, this is the biggest need of mankind. Their sins need to be forgiven. And while this passage teaches us something about the Lord Jesus Christ and his divinity, Right, because that was the scribe's response. Right? By what authority do you do this? Only God can forgive sins. Well, yes, it does teach us about his authority and his divinity because he says, which is easier, to say, get up and walk or for your sins are forgiven? And he says, get up and walk. So he wants us to know that the Son of Man has the authority. This is the key. Look at verse, if you have your turn to Mark chapter 2 where he has this. Mark chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He tells us why he said this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Mark 2, verse 9. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, go, get up, and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you, you plural, you all, so that you all may know that the Son of Man has authority, authority to do what? On earth, to forgive sins. He's not just divine. He has divine authority to forgive sins. That's why he's here. Do you see how he got the gospel in there? Here's this, this man in front of him. He could have just said, get up and walk. And then he could have talked about something. But he, he, this particular instance, he starts with the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Sets it right in front of them. And he wants them. He does this because he wants them to know he can forgive forgive sins. Is there anything more central to the gospel than Jesus Christ can forgive sins? The man healed at the pool of Bethesda. After he, he heals him, he finds him in the temple and says, Behold, you have become well. John chapter 5, verse 14. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. There it is again. Do not sin anymore. Why even talk about that? He just healed him. So he didn't say, Get a job. Get your life in order. He said, do not sin anymore. The woman caught in adultery, when he addresses her, he doesn't say, okay, now let's get your marriage back in order. He says, neither do I condemn you, though he could, in a sense. Go, from now on, sin no more. There's a, there's a gospel nugget right there. When he when he listens when he hears the news of uh, grievous deaths, right? How many of us, when we when we listen to, to uh, Al Mohler in the morning, if you listen to the briefing and he talks about all the horrid things going on in our society and the terrible things that are happening, immediately say, "You know what? I'm gonna I am going i got to preach the gospel." Well, this is this is what Jesus did. Luke thirteen. Right, He says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does he do? He gets the the local news on some terrible tragedy, and he turns it around and says, you need to repent. Sin is the issue. And he goes on when it says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them We're worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I want to be careful here, but I want to kind of modernize this for us so that we can kind of understand something of what is being said here. Now, we all know what's going on in the Middle East, and and I condemn terrorism and murder like, like the next person. It is absolutely horrific what has been done in the name of God, and I support Israel's right as a nation to defend itself. That is, I think, a, a responsibility that a nation has to defend itself. Nevertheless, have we noticed in the midst of all of this horrific activity that we have two false religions fighting against each other? Both need the gospel. And so could we say something like, do you suppose that these Palestinians are worse sinners than you? Do you suppose that these Israelites who were murdered were worse sinners than you. No, but unless we all repent, we will likewise perish. And this is what they need. We need, to, you know, we need to pray that God would save more than one son of Hamas. We need to pray that God would save zealous, upright, Jewish people. Because they need a Messiah. How many of us have watched The Fiddler on the Roof? How many of you have seen The Fiddler on the Roof? It's a great movie. I love that movie. You get to the end, right? You get almost to the end, and, and they're told they have to leave Anatevka. Right? And I'm enjoying the tradition, and I'm, everything that's going on there. It's just, just exciting, and the family life, and, and the dilemmas that Tevya finds himself. So it's just, it's great. Laughing, and you're getting into it. And then this man says, you've got to leave. And the tailor says to the rabbi, rabbi, wouldn't this be a good time for Messiah to come? I get right to that point, I get punched right in the solar plexus. Boom! Oh, all, the, all the joy goes out of it. It's just like, they missed him. He came. The people in Israel need the gospel. And so we see all this horror going on around us, and what's the answer? What is it we need to bring? We should get. There's all kinds of political activity that states should engage in, and I, I, I understand all that, but the, the basic line for us as Christians should be, is the gospel going forth? Baruch Maoz is right now back in Israel. He went back to help the people of God there, the church that he was a part of for many years, because he sees the gospel needs to come to Palestinians, to terrorists, to Israels, to Jewish people. The gospel is what they need. Jesus goes to to Matthew's house, another sample here. He goes to Matthew's house, and what does he do? As he's sitting there at dinner, he brings the gospel. Constantly with the Pharisees, you know, um, talking about a house divided cannot stand. Uh, The kingdom of God has drawn near, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 45. We read there that, that he talks about forgiveness of sins can be forgiven except one. The whole sin of the Holy Spirit. And, and how many of us come to that passage and what we get caught up, What's that sin of the Holy Spirit? You know, we, we need to understand, well, we missed the whole statement that went before that: "Every other sin against man can be forgiven them, even blasphemy against the Son." Why does, Why don't we focus on that as much and go, "Hey, look at this. Oh yeah, there's this statement over here, and I don't understand all that, but look at this. This is what Jesus was doing, sitting there with the, with the, with the various the scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians. And then he talks about three signs. Three signs. He talks about Jonah, Nineveh, and the Queen of the South. And what is he doing? He's bringing the gospel to them. He says, with Jonah, he says, three days in the belly fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days. What's he telling? Here's the gospel. The Son of Man is going to die and he's going to rise again. He talks about, the, about Nineveh. Why does he talk about Nineveh? Because Nineveh, when they heard the preaching of one of Jonah, and wasn't that a wonderful gospel message? 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. Now, there's, let's try that on the streets. Right? But that's what he was preaching. And a whole city is saved. And he says, they repented when they heard. How about you? And then with the Queen of Sheba, he's not just going on with them having nice little theological discussions with his Jewish, these Jewish teachers. He goes on to say, you know, the Queen of Sheba came and she recognized somebody great in her presence with great wisdom and she listened. One greater than Solomon is here. Will you listen? You see the point, he's not just talking... To fill up some, to tell us some things about the Old Testament and about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He's doing this to bring the gospel to the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them that they face a danger if they reject Him. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 11, the tradition instead of God's commandments, and He says, You're defiled, but it's it's not your commandments that's the problem. You're defiled before a holy God. The rich young ruler, He comes in and He tells, he, he immediately addresses him with the law. Boom, hits him with the law. And he says, you oh, know, I've done all that. And he says, one thing you lack. And he gets very, very specific. He knows this young man. Whether it's by divine, prophetic, utter knowledge or whether it's through knowing him, but he, he knows him and he speaks to him particularly and says, you know, you've got this one sin. And then goes on to talk about, as we saw earlier, how hard it is to enter the kingdom. It's all about being saved. Zacchaeus, here's a great evangelist. I love this evangelistic activity. What's he doing? He's a, here, we're just talking about personal, providential circumstances. People that he just happens to bump into at different, in different times, and he takes those opportunities to interject the gospel into these. And so Zacchaeus, he says, come down, I'm going to your house this afternoon. And salvation has come to your house For he too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, that's what he was doing. He was evangelizing, even when he says, I'm going to come to your house this afternoon. Now, I emphasize this so that we understand the various ways in which Jesus engaged in evangelism. Open air preaching, regular teaching and, and sermonizing, and a lot of personal, providential conversations. Those are the contexts. Well, that's extremely helpful because as we're going to see later when I come to some final applications in the morning hours, so we're gonna we're gonna see that, you know, anybody who wants to say this is the one way, if you're not doing this, you're not evangelizing, is not following the example of Jesus. Jesus, did you notice there's 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 no tent meetings? Right? There there's there's he 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 just speaks to people the truths of the gospel from the word of God frequently, sometimes without any direct reference to the word of God, an allusion to the word of God, but he just sets before people the need to be saved from their sins. Now, there's a number of suggestive passages that we could look at. Let's just take the first one, and then we'll, we'll call it quits for the adult class here. So some suggestive examples see in my notes and i think it's in your notes i'm not sure if i changed that some suggestive examples the first one religious conversation a religious conversation now if i were I, if, if i were a well i want to say that if i were to ask you where did jesus do the work of evangelists, i would be surprised if the first among the top ones you know if this were family feud what's at the top of the list right Nicodemus, the woman at the well, maybe the rich young ruler. Boom, boom, boom. These are the ones that are going to come up. But you see, there's so many other ones. And that's what I did. So when I was doing this study for the pastor's conference, I read through the entire book of Matthew with these glasses on. Where, the, where does the gospel appear? And it's just one chapter after another. It just keeps coming in. He keeps interjecting it in all of these different conversations and interactions with people. But let's look at Nicodemus, because that's where everybody's mind goes. So let's look at John chapter 3. Now, the first thing we can say about John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, is it was clearly providential. Jesus didn't call for him. Jesus didn't seek him out. He came to Jesus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So clearly providential, uh, miracles. If we look down to verse to chapter five and verse thirty-six, are some of what probably triggered him to come. And likewise, our good deeds and our lives of doing good to others can oftentimes be a, a trigger to draw people to us. It's clearly providential, and it's clearly theological in its. In its Uh, in its focus. He's going to talk about being born again. He's going to be talking about coming down from heaven. He's going to talk about the Spirit blowing. A lot of theology going on here. But Jesus is very purposeful. Did you notice that he didn't answer Nicodemus's question? Nicodemus comes with a specific question, and he says, you know, he says to him, you know, this is what's being said about you, and I think he's looking for, you know, can you give me some uh, evidence or some?" He says, He just gets right to the gospel and the need that this man has and says to him, how can a man be, excuse me, truly, 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 I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He immediately gets to the kingdom of God. He immediately gets to this reality of the kingdom and how to get into the kingdom, being born again. In verse 3, so Jesus poses this challenging thought to him. Verse 4, Nicodemus responds with, a, with kind of a, a questioning, this idea, what is it you're talking about? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then Jesus explains. Verse 9, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand what's going on. And, and Jesus highlights. Here's another good evangelistic tool. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? That, that's quite a challenge to this man. He's very, He said, wait a minute, you should, you should know these things. Why don't you know these things? You don't have the right mindset to be able to make accurate theological assessments. You're missing a key element here. You can't see the truth. And then notice verse 13. Jesus now gets around to introducing himself to Nicodemus. And one, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of God. Of man, These are the heavenly things that you really need to understand. The Son of Man has come down from heaven to earth. He alludes in verse 14 then to his death, the gospel coming out. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He says, let me take this Old Testament example from Numbers and say, see how it applies to me. The Son of Man needs to be lifted up. Verse 15, Jesus highlights the importance of faith and the blessing of believing so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You see the gospel. He starts with this religious man, comes with his his question, ignores his question, redirects the conversation to say, you know, there's something more important that we need to talk about. The kingdom of God. Are you in it or not? Central to the kingdom of God, the Son of Man has come down to establish his kingdom. Do you believe that? He's going to die by being lifted up. Do you believe that? And then Jesus sets forth the foundation gospel realities in verses 16 to 21. God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He says, you see, what he, he, he took this whole providential conversation and he says that we could all talk about theology, and we could sit here and talk about the Old Testament. We could talk about all your Jewish, Jewishness and non-Jewish, and we could. But you know what? I want—I've got something bigger in mind here. Are you part of the kingdom? And notice here too that the, the, the reality—you must be born again—is not a command. It's a statement of fact. You can't tell somebody to be born again because they can't be. But it's a fact they must be if they're going to enter the kingdom. In other words, it's got to be a sovereign work that's done to bring you to new life. And so Jesus presses Nicodemus with gospel truths. Do you believe that God gave his only begotten son to die for sinners? Do you believe that judgment and eternal life hang in the balance? Do you believe that unbelief and belief are the two categories of people and how they're divided, and one is light and the other is in the darkness? What a great gospel opportunity. Well, there's our first example of Jesus interacting with a religious sinner who needed the gospel. Well, let's pray in the minute that remains, and uh, we'll be dismissed for our brief break, and then we'll come back, and Lord willing, hear more as we worship God together in the hour to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious to us that we would not in any way trivialize who Jesus is and what Jesus did, but that we would see in him an example for us to follow, that we might learn from him, walk as he walked, that we might be, that we might be about the work of evangelism. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.